Listener Production. Let me cast your mind back to 250 million years ago when magma began to well up through the weakened crust of the supercontinent known as Pangaea. The strong surge of magma upwards would cause large rifts that would span hundreds of kilometres, eventually breaking the landmass in two. What was once vast oceans of nothing sat a new supercontinent, Gondwana land. Gondwana land itself would eventually fragment into present-day Africa, South America, India, Madagascar, New Zealand and Australia. It was here on Gondwana land where Australia's sole remaining amphibian would evolve. A creature that would walk the earth before and after the age of the dinosaurs. A creature so strong that with each contraction of its hind legs, it propels itself forward at a length 20 times that of its body. A creature with survival and adaptation built in its DNA. Frog. For centuries, these unassuming yet remarkable creatures have played a critical role in waterway health, agriculture, and medical innovation. In ancient civilizations, they were symbols of fertility and life. But today, they're in trouble. Frogs and different amphibians are rapidly declining all around the globe. They're the most threatened taxa that we have, and there's been approximately 200 species that have gone extinct due to the fungal disease Chytridiomycosis. Fire and, and drought and floods, when these threats get to a magnitude that they've never experienced before in their evolutionary history, which can be generated from anthropogenic climate change, I'm not sure if they'll be able to cope with that. Dr Chad Berenek and Dr Rose Upton are part of a group of scientists changing the way we think about and approach conservation. You see, traditional conservation efforts are usually implemented in the habitat where the species is found. Whereas the University of Newcastle's Conservation Science and Research Group combines these in situ conservation efforts with ex situ conservation efforts, like cryopreservation and captive breeding programs. Projects happening outside the habitat, but with the same common goal, to save frogs from extinction. And in some cases, bring them back from extinction. The intrinsic value of every species that exists on Earth, it's just a tragedy to lose any one of them because each one of them represents over 4 billion years of evolution. Hi, I'm Shani Wellington. I'm a Wandi Wandian and Geringer woman and I'm from the University of Newcastle. And this is The Minds Changing Lives. Can you hear the difference between this frog and this frog? Let's listen again. This frog 
and this frog. The giant burrowing frog in particular, they, they usually have a grumpy face, I've noticed. They make kind of a trilling, almost owl-sounding call. They usually have this shade of purple on them, especially on their legs, and they do have a little bit of warts, which could give them a little bit of a toad appearance, but they're quite a nice frog, and it's always exciting when you find one in the bush because they're, they're really hard to find, actually. Dr Chad Berenek is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Newcastle and member of the Conservation Science Research Group, led by Dr Alex Callan and Dr Kaya Klopp-Toker. He can tell hundreds of frogs apart just by their calls. Recently, he was part of a team that analysed over 16,000 overnight acoustic calls, which is how he knows that what you're listening to now is the captivating call of the Pew's Mountain Frog. Their call sounds a bit like, you know, a human fart or maybe some tummy rumbling or something like that. It's pretty humorous. <laughs> yeah, they're a remarkable frog. They're a part of the Philoria genus and all the species in that genus are very... They're from that ancient Gondwanan lineage. They live in rainforests. They can be very variable in their colour. Sometimes you can get kind of blandy, beigey-looking ones, but, you know, we found some which were bright orange. I guess the same colour as an autumn leaf when it goes that really bright orange colour, and I think that's probably what they're trying to mimic so that they can blend in on the rainforest floor in the leaf litter. The Pew's mountain frog was just one of the 35 endangered species Chad analysed in a recent study investigating the impact of the 2019-2020 black summer bushfires. Led by Professor Michael Marnie and funded by a Commonwealth grant, Chad and his team surveyed 411 sites across New South Wales. I was personally in the field about six months after the fires. I think the first surveys I did was in the Blue Mountains. I remember when I went out there, it was very eerie because you went into this forest, which I'd been in before, which was quite lush and there was lots of animals around, but when you went back there, there was no trees regrowing. You couldn't even hear a bird. It was just silent. And I've never experienced being in, you know, in the Blue Mountains where it's just totally silent throughout the entire day, throughout the entire night. There's not one animal sound. And that was really, yeah, profound and sad. As everyone knows, these fires were um, massive. They, you know, over 8 million hectares burnt, the biggest fires we've ever experienced. I remember you know, all my ecology mates, we were kind of just chatting online as we were seeing the bushfires advance across the whole of New South Wales and, and we were kind of keeping tr- like a mental record of like, oh, yep, so that, that species' entire distribution is now almost entirely engulfed in flames. My... 11-year-old son and I ended up fleeing in the middle of the night when we realised that the the fire was upon us. We'd been told that uh, we had until 8 o'clock in the morning to make a decision as to whether we were going to stay or go, but the fire moved a lot faster than they thought it would, so it was was basically a matter of, of fleeing for our lives. There aren't many who know just how severe the black summer bushfires were than mid-coast resident Olivia Forge. 
She's a nature lover, mother of two boys and a farmer. Like many of those impacted by the fires, they were forced to make a decision. Stay and protect their home or leave. My partner uh, decided to stay for a while and see if he could defend our property. He managed to save our house though, which is a very old wooden house, but we lost all our outbuildings, our garage and our workshop, granny flat, sheds, all the fences, and lots of our precious things. It's a trauma that is still running strongly through the whole community, um, and certainly it's still there in our family as well. But I also found it so traumatic to see what had happened around us, you know, not only to the man-made structures, but to the environment in general. And it was so devastated and so many animals were lost. I remember looking at it soon after the fires and thinking, there's just no way that this can ever come back. It's, you know, it's so devastated. Seeing the environmental devastation caused by the fires compounded the loss herself and her family were already experiencing because humans depend on biodiversity for survival. The more diverse our ecosystems are, the better life is supported. The cleaner the water, the healthier the soil, the happier the humans, literally. Frogs play a critical role in the food web. Tadpoles keep waterways clean by feeding on algae. Adult frogs safeguard agriculture by eating billions of crop-destroying insects each year. And they also stop the spread of diseases like malaria spreading to humans. They're food themselves too, supporting life for countless other animals. Plus, medicine might not be where it is today without frogs. In fact, 10% of Nobel Prizes in physiology and medicine have resulted from studies that use frogs. Sadly, Chad's research on the population of the giant burrowing frog, our grumpy-looking friend from the start, has found that it is now feared to be locally extinct in some areas due to the fires. The frog's ability to burrow up to one metre underground could not save it. But it wasn't all bad news. Whenever you mention fire with frogs, I think it's important to also think about drought. Whether you're talking about fire or drought, I think it's the action of drying out the landscape. Frogs need moisture to survive. Even if the frogs do find moist refuges, they have to be moist enough so that they don't burn, and that's probably not the case every time. After I did some helped out with some of the surveys in the Blue Mountains, I was one of two people who were stationed and responsible for surveying all the um, furthest northern sites in New South Wales up in the rainforest. A lot of this rainforest has never burnt before in its evolutionary history. So even if it's a little bit burnt, that's still very significant. We're anticipating that the tree frogs would be highly impacted by the fires, but we found that the tree frogs actually persisted quite well, even in really burnt areas where, you know, entire trees and forests were burnt. And so we're very surprised about that. And we think it could talk to the conservation value of old growth trees and other trees where 
tree frogs can go deep into the trees where they're buffered from the impacts of the fires. In a lot of ways, the perseverance shown by the Little John's tree frog is indicative of the frog genus as a whole. Frogs were, you know, some of the first animals that colonised land. Some of these frogs, they're as ancient as the platypus and they're also as weird as the platypus. We have all these lineages of frogs that came from that ancient Gondwana land. Back then, when Australia was attached to Antarctica, it was just all cold, temperate rainforest. All of Australia's animals that evolved in Australia, they all come from a rainforest ancestor. That even includes things like, you know, kangaroos. All the frogs in Australia that evolved in Gondwana land all come from rainforest ancestors. And so when we talk about, you know, the rainforest dwelling species, most of them have been living in rainforests for almost their entire evolutionary history. I guess it really shows the enormity of what's at risk of losing when we talk about these precious amphibians and frogs, you know, they haven't been just around since our existence. It's predated a lot longer than that. Absolutely, yes. I don't think people do realise how diverse frogs are. Nadine Nolan is also a member of the Conservation Science Research Group. She's a PhD candidate interested in the effectiveness of conservation methods and life cycle of amphibians. 44% of amphibians are biphasic, which means they have a larval stage, which is usually contained within the water body. And then they go through the process of metamorphosis where their whole body changes and they reabsorb their tail, sprout legs and kind of move from the water onto the land. That in itself is amazing, right? I was just about to say, yeah. you've, you've explained that very eloquently about something that is mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah. Down to the digestive tract has to change from like a herbivorous larval stage into a carnivorous frog that's eating insects. So even at that level, it, they're totally restructuring their body. It's a complete revolution. But then you've also got like direct developing ones and ones that have little froglets explode out of their back into the water. They're just amazing and all kinds of shapes and colours and sizes. Nadine, tell us a little bit about your PhD and what that's all about. My PhD is a bit unusual. It's very applied. I'm looking at different actions that we put in place and how they actually bolster frogs and the populations. So I've got different chapters where we're looking at creating man-made ponds in the Wadigans, so, you know, helping the frogs out in the wild. Another chapter of my thesis will be looking at how genetic diversity improves sperm quality. Nadine's PhD reflects the core principles of the Conservation Science Research Group, that conservation should be attacked from multiple different angles, both in the field, Chad's work, and in the lab. It was an approach born in response to the devastating impact of the frog's biggest threat, the fungal disease, chytrid. Chytrid attacks the keratin in a frog's skin, disrupting the flow and levels of electrolytes, which eventually leads to a heart attack. Fieldwork alone wasn't going to fix this problem, 
they needed a biological approach too. While it is a dire situation, I'm I'm confident that we can reverse this trend by using this applied integrated method, looking at genetics, monitoring populations consistently across years, cryopreserving genetics, implementing captive breeding programs. I know a lot of researchers tend to know what they know and stay in their lane, whereas this is trying to open those doors and get as many people involved and inspired to kind of, you know, bring together all this knowledge so we can better improve conservation outcomes. We're all working on slightly different aspects of the Mm. same project. Um, We like to think of this as integrated conservation without each of our little portions of work, um, all of that has to come together and they're all complementary approaches. So we're not trying to say that sperm cryopreservation and gene banking on its own will save a species. Um, In combination with all these other approaches, we think we're in a really unique position to really help conserve our endangered species. This is Dr Rose Upton. She's a conservation biologist and, you guessed it, she's also a member of the Conservation Science Research Group. Her contribution to the group is in the field of cryopreservation. So I guess uh, I study the reproductive biology of different endangered frogs and try and understand about their sperm quality and their egg quality and things like that. When we need to preserve sperm from a population, that's sort of where I come in. So for you, was it always reproductive biology? How did you get into this? I've actually always loved frogs. When I grew up, we used to go out to the ponds and look at the little tadpoles and watch them grow into frogs. So I guess it was really lucky that the opportunity presented itself at the University of Newcastle. But actually, it was back in 2014 that the Lazarus Project was happening, and that's how I got involved. Lazarus Project sounds very cool. Could you tell us a bit more about that? The Lazarus Project was an opportunity that came up um, many years ago now. There's a frog called the gastric brooding frog. This frog is very unique biology. It swallows its tadpoles and the young would um, develop in the stomach and then they would regurgitate the frog when it was ready to come out into the world. This was a species discovered by Professor Michael Marnie and it was um, soon to be extinct. Luckily, there was um, a couple of specimens frozen in just a regular minus 20 freezer like you'd have in any of your houses. So the the group of scientists got together, including some of our amazing researchers at the University of Newcastle, to try and bring the species back. This is called de-extinction. Wow. No wonder you were inspired. (laughs) It's pretty cool. (laughs) And when you say cryopreservation, could you break that down a little bit for us layman's? Cryopreservation is really um, about preserving cells or tissue at really low temperatures, for example, in liquid nitrogen, which has a um, a balmy temperature of negative 196 degrees Celsius. It's more than just putting the sample in the liquid nitrogen. Most of our cells and tissues contain really high contents of water. As we all know, when you put water in the freezer, it expands. This tends to damage and rupture our cells that we put into liquid nitrogen. So this whole process involves adding cryoprotectants and then sort of controlling the rate that we freeze and those cryoprotectants help protect the cell from the inside. What methods have you introduced that make this this process more viable? Yeah, so I guess I mentioned that all of our cells have a lot of water in them and that we need to sort of draw that water temporarily out of the cell to protect it during freezing. 
And so a component of the cryoprotectant that we use enters the cell and protects it from the inside, but we also have what we call the non-penetrating component on the outside of the cell. And this is actually just sugar, like what you'd put in your coffee every day. That sugar helps draw the water out because it helps balance that osmotic gradient. And by reducing the amount of sugar that we put into that cryoprotectant, we've been able to balance that process a little bit better and that provides more um, motility of the sperm after we, re- after we thaw it out. Wow. Sugar. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. Rose would have thought. Rose <laughs> knew about sugar. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. Is it a bit of an IVF process for frogs? Yeah. So um, once we have that sperm, we can get some eggs from a female. We put them in a dish. We add some sperm on top swirl it around and then hopefully we get lots of little embryos and froggies coming from that. So that's obviously the next step that we need after preserving the sperm because in order to use that and reintroduce it into a population, we need to have those IVF protocols in place. As an example, my research has produced cryo-preserved sperm-derived offspring from the endangered green and golden bell frog, which is a locally endangered species from Kurigang Island. And why is genetic diversity for frogs so important? So genetic diversity, I guess, is a measure of the health of the population. So, you know, we have different genes in our, in our, like in our species. So, for example, our eye colour, our hair colour, these are all a result of our uh, genetics. And as a species declines, they're losing different genes. And that actually means that they're less able to adapt to a changing environment. So when we talk about things like climate change and increased mm. bushfires, um, it's really leaving them in a, in a tough spot. And so if you can cryopreserve and protect the sperm of those different individuals before we have an incident like a fire or disease, then we can actually reintroduce those genetics back to the population later on once we mm. have the opportunity. Mm. What's exciting about Rose's research is that cryopreservation can be used before a species gets to that endangered phase. Right now, there's a genome bank with hundreds of frog DNA samples. They've been building this in partnership with the Taronga Conservation Society. All of the research projects and studies that the group engages in creates an ecosystem of its own. Part of that ecosystem is habitat creation, which Nadine mentioned before. In partnership with New South Wales Forestry Corporation and National Parks, They've created breeding ponds in the Wadigans National Park for the Little John's tree frog about 100 kilometres from Sydney. The beautiful thing about this is that it gives ordinary people like you and me an avenue to engage in frog conservation too. For your PhD, was the walking paths in the Wadigans, was that a really important consideration for you? I think part of conservation is getting the community involved and having that walking track through there really engages the community and makes them aware of the frogs that are in their backyard and what is happening to them. A lot of people don't know that there is this global extinction crisis going on and by enabling a walking track through these ponds, it really engages the community And it creates a bit of a sense of responsibility and obligation once you're able to immerse yourself in that environment. Just the knowledge and then the power that comes from, wow, this is in my backyard. 
I can do something about this. And there's a lot of signage up throughout those walking trails, which helps people get involved in frog conservation and become citizen science. For me, that's what citizen science is about. You know, it's a kind of collaboration between scientists and the general public. An amazing thing about citizen science is it gives people like a stake in the environment that's around them. Citizen science is another important facet of the Conservation Science Research Group. In 2019, Professor Michael Marnie was awarded $300,000 from the New South Wales Government's Saving Our Species grant to investigate the threats to five threatened frog species. The project involved citizen scientists like Olivia. It was when Olivia returned to her property that almost by accident, she became a passionate citizen scientist herself. When all the mess was cleared away from the fires, we were left with a a concrete slab. The two boys who were then 11 and 15 suddenly had a concrete slab that allowed them to ride their bikes and play cricket and do all those kind of things. And so next to the concrete slab was where the granny flat was, which was just now a you know, a a pile of dirt, and they decided that they would dig a little track for their bikes that went off the concrete. So they basically dug two enormous holes which they were going to ride their bikes around. That worked really well for about three days until it rained, and then they realised that, in fact, what they dug was, in fact, two enormous ponds instead (laughs) So we went, oh, okay, so we've wanted a frog pond for a long time um, and they've just made them for us. They've put all the work in. And so we ended up with these two lovely frog ponds. What you're hearing now is the sound of those frog ponds Olivia was talking about. They're thriving. What was once a muddy pit is now a lush ecosystem with reeds and with rainwater. It's here that her and her family record the sounds of frogs that they submit to the Australian Museum's Frog ID app. The University of Newcastle has also developed an app. It's called Frog Find. This data informs research across the world, including that of Chad's, Rose's and Nadine. The power of citizen science can't be underestimated. Getting people out in nature makes them feel happier. Feeling invested in your environment gives you a sense of purpose, like you can make a difference. For Olivia, this sense of connectivity and belonging helped in the recovery after the bushfires. It made me feel amazing that we could actually make a difference, that, you know, that we, that we could actually do something and provide uh, like a, a proper home for these frogs that without us probably wouldn't survive. With everyone doing a little bit, uh, you know, you, you can really make a difference and you can provide data and information uh, to scientists so that they can make a big difference. You know, we're talking about frogs and other animals, but we're also an animal. We, we have our evolutionary history. Uh, we evolved in the savannas and then our deeper ancestors also evolved in rainforests. And we're adapted to all these things as well. 
And what we are adapted to is yeah, having biodiverse landscapes and constantly being in nature and constantly experiencing all those sounds like the dawn chorus of birds, animals roaming through the landscape, fresh water in streams. We're adapted to live in that kind of environment and experience that. And so the further we move away from that, you know, the unhappier we'll be. When you talk about conservation, I think every conservationist can, um, yeah, conclude that, you know, that this is kind of the driver of why we study this is because we recognize this and we recognize each species is important as just one little piece in the ecosystem that we're trying to conserve because we understand that every single one's important and a part of a greater whole it's all interlinked and it all benefits us. What do you think needs to be done to protect these species, especially as, you know, we head into summer? One thing I've been thinking about, which would be uh, really helpful for both the animals and the humans, is to get property owners to build frog moats in, around their house. Some researchers did studies on looking at what factors influence whether houses were more likely to burn down or not. And one of the factors that they found which was um, predicted the house to burn down less often is if the house was situated near a body of water or not. As the water heats up during the day, you get more vapour in the atmosphere, in the local atmosphere there, and then when it cools down at night, all the water vapour sets in that local landscape. That will lead to a less chance of any houses on the property burning down, but also it will provide, if you keep a permanent source of water, that also benefits the local frog populations and probably all the other animal populations in the landscape as well. Nadine, what is next on the horizon for you? What do you see as the next step? Definitely trying to continue to monitor the populations. So once we implement these conservation actions, we want to we want to make sure they're working. So a lot of my job over the next couple of years will be to monitor the health of the frogs and make sure the numbers are going up, uh, the genetics uh, are improving. So I guess the next chapter for me will be looking at whether we're able to crossbreed between populations of the same species and see if we can improve their genetics. Yeah, so because that's an important thing that we need to consider as well, you know. Our group has a really diverse group of people with a wide range of skills. And so we've, we're in a really unique opportunity to really affect and manage the conservation of the Little John's tree frog. One of our PhD students, Sarah Stock, has been able to examine the genetic health of those populations. This means that we can be really targeted in the way that we help manage this species and we know which populations we should be targeting to collect sperm and cryopreserve sperm for our gene bank. And very cool to be on the same team going towards a common goal. Definitely. It's such an amazing group of people. We're a very um, supportive group. It's been the biggest pleasure of my life to work with such an amazing group of people. How does it feel knowing that your research is having an impact, you know, on those frogs but could have an impact on many frog populations into the future. I guess it feels pretty incredible. When we collect sperm, we're always thinking about how we're labelling it and things like that. And the reason is because all of the samples we collect, we have to treat them as though they might be a precious resource in even 100 years' time. Mm. And so to think that the work that you're doing might save a species when you're long gone is, is really a very incredible feeling. 
Whatever you think about frogs, charming, slimy, weird or wonderful, their importance to us as humans is undeniable. They're the guardians of agriculture, the cleaners of waterways, nature's natural scientists. They inspire curiosity, each one offering a glimpse back into time's past. They teach us about adaptability and the wonders of life's diversity. Humans have benefited from frogs for hundreds of thousands of years. They're one of the few species that evolved alongside humans, connecting generations past, present, and now, thanks to the Conservation Science Research Group, Future Two. This is what the group is trying to save. And thanks to their cutting edge approach, they're well on their way to do just that. This podcast is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the University of Newcastle, hosted by me, Shani Wellington. Produced by Kelsey Menzies, executive producer is Todd Stevens, with audio production by Kelly Fulston. Listener.